Okay, well, I am glad to be with you guys physically tonight. Last Wednesday I was not feeling the greatest, and I'll be honest, I'm not feeling the most greatest tonight, but God is good. I'm excited to talk about the Lord of the harvest, but before we do, I know there are some people who need to go some places. Youth, our kiddos, is there no ladies? Okay, so youth and children, you are dismissed at this point. And everyone else, if you will open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We're going to read verse 34 and 35. John chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. We'll give just a minute for everyone to kind of get situated here. I want to say thank you, first of all, to, to Pastor Powell for covering for me kind of last minute last week. Um, I, I have been thinking about this title for some time, and uh, though I had shared the, the title with him, I had not shared any thoughts beyond that. No, no scriptures, nothing. Um, so when he wrote back to me and he said, hey, here's what I want to talk about, I'm like, well, you stole my entire first lesson already. So I guess it's good that he's Lord of the harvest and not us. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 34, says, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. I mentioned when I first walked up here that Though we may be, God is not constrained by time. And he says that the harvest is already ready. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what the word saith. Let it change us and not seek to change it. Let us be obedient to your word and to your spirit to help us to be more like you each and every day. We know that there is a harvest and that you are the Lord thereof. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. John chapter 4, the disciples are speaking with Jesus. And often, as is the case, the disciples are concerned about things that are going to happen and when they are going to happen. There are numerous places throughout the Gospels we hear the disciples asking Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it now that these things are going to take place? You see, the Jews had become accustomed to this mentality of always looking forward to something. So they, they knew where they were and who they were supposed to be, and yet their whole life was defined by one day when God restores the kingdom, one day when he returns with the rod of iron, and then we can be complete, and then we can be who he has called us to be. But in the meantime, they, they constantly lived in this state of, of ungratitude and, 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 and longing for something else other than what God had told them. They were unable to see the harvest and the, the, the need that was already at their door. In Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 35, and I'm going to read 35 through 38. This is exactly where Pastor Powell spoke from last week, and so this will be familiar. But let me read over this briefly for some context. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went about all the cities 
and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness, every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Last week, Pastor Powell took a somewhat of a unique approach, even by his own uh, words, that he took his four points, if you will, and kind of worked them in reverse. Um, and and he, he, he did that in a way that I thought was fantastic. And one of the things that I even wrote down uh, on my own separately was, you know, um, Jesus didn't wait until there was a need before he went. But rather, he went, and as he saw the need, he acted. I, I, I would dare say, if you're looking for a need, you're not looking very hard because there's a need around every corner. So the, the, the rule or the call, if you will, is not look for a need and then go, but go. And as you see the need, respond. I love here, though, that he is re referencing he sees the people, and he has mercy on them because, because he sees that they are sheep that are scattered, having no shepherd. Now, I read that verse, and, and first of all, regardless of any context, it, I, I take that and I, I look at that, and I'm like, God, how amazing is it that despite our continued rejection of your word, despite our own, you know, personal and, and, and conglomerate, if you will, rejection of your word, you continue to look at us as sheep still in need of a shepherd. He could look at us as someone who says, I've given you instructions, you've refused to hear them, so I'm done. And yet, instead, in his mercy, he looks and says, okay, they still need the shepherd's voice in their life. And I look at that and I am, I am constantly grateful in my own life for no doubt there have been numerous times in my own journey where I have not been doing exactly what God has told me to do. And yet his mercy still reached for me even in my times of my own rejection. But you know, something that hits me even harder when I read that verse can only be understood if you actually go back to the beginning of this chapter. And that's what I want to do tonight. I, I want to look here for just a few moments because when Jesus looks in through all of Matthew chapter 9 and he says, look, there is a harvest. We need laborers to go out into the harvest. We all see that. But what's amazing here is the, the, the order of which things occur because First, he's going to point out the need for laborers in the harvest, but then he is going to list out the law for the laborer. What it is the laborers need to know, need to do, and how they need to act in carrying forth this harvest. Let's back up just for a moment here in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into... His own city. Think about that for just a moment. 
the last verse there, in the last couple verses in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus looking at the people and saying that he had compassion on them because they were a, a scattered sheep in need of a shepherd. But these weren't Gentiles in some foreign nation that he was looking at saying that they were scattered sheep in need of a shepherd. No, these were people in his own city. These are his people. Not just spiritually, if you will, but these are his kindred, his brethren. These are the, the neighbors that he knew growing up, people who knew his family. And here he comes into his own city, and he sees his city as a sheep that is scattered in need of a shepherd. I can imagine, at least in my own mind, thinking, here is God, robed in flesh, coming to do this great work. And yet the people in his own backyard do not even recognize his voice. Think about that for a moment. Verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, a certain of the scribes and with them, within themselves... This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is it easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, let me repeat the first verse of this chapter. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. You see, it's easy to read through this chapter and think that Israel at large or, or mankind at large had seen Jesus doing these things and they rejected him. Maybe they didn't understand who this person was or where he came from. Maybe they saw him as just some foreigner from another country. But that's not the case. Jesus entered his own city amongst his own people, the people who knew him and his family. And in his own city, he does 
a miracle, something good, something to uplift another. And what is he greeted with immediately? Oh, that's a Jesus. That's, that's Joseph and Mary's boy. He must be a blasphemer. He's a, he has to be of ill repute. He cannot be anybody important. We know who he is. And I imagine in my own mind, you know, just this is the way I have to, to read the Bible. For me, I have to imagine myself, if you will, in the scene so that it becomes real to me. So I imagine for a moment, back in my own hometown in Louisiana, going into my own home church, which I loved, and I imagine being there in, in a fellowship and all the people there, and, and God, for whatever reason, choosing to, to do a miracle in that place, maybe through me, not that I'm God, not that I'm comparing myself to Jesus in any way, but trying to understand this mentality of, of what's happening here. So here it is with the people that have known me, the people that have known my family, the people that I love and hopefully love me. And God chooses to do something miraculous for someone else and for whatever reason chooses to use me as a vessel. And instead of rejoicing in the thing that God is doing, they say, oh, no, 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 that's Jeremy. He comes from a poor family with a broken home. He wasn't in church most of his life. You know, his mom walked away from God for a while. And instead of seeing the miraculous, the grace of God in action, they only can see the flesh. They can only see, well, it can't be that because God would have used me if it was really miraculous. I mean, look, let's be honest. That's what's really happening in this chapter. You have these people who are saying that they are God's chosen people, that they are the ones that God is going to use to do anything miraculous. And so when they see this, this lesser than coming and doing this, they automatically say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. God didn't use me, therefore it cannot be God. I worry sometimes that we can do the same thing, okay? And listen, I'm, I'm speaking to me 100%, so if your toes full stepped on, don't worry, mine have all been crushed, okay? If my immediate reaction is to see God doing something great in someone's life and to see God using them in a mighty way, and my immediate fleshly reaction is suspicion, well, maybe, maybe there's something else going on here. This really isn't quite God. This is just emotionalism, and it's a fad, and it's going to fade. Well, is that what's happening, or is it me in my flesh saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm a preacher. If God was going to do that, he would do that through me. So here is the stage. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh. The word become life amongst his own people, seeking to bring about his kingdom, and this is how he is greeted. Now, I'm not naive. God's not surprised by this. It's not that God is so taken aback that like he's going to give up. But, but for me, the reader, trying to understand the emotional state 
of Jesus. I, I, I can almost not comprehend it. So now when we get to the end of, of this chapter, and we see Jesus explaining that, that pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers, now we proceed to Matthew chapter 10. And here's where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. And I'll give you fair warning, and I already told Pastor Powell this. This is something I don't typically do. I have no notes, just the verses in front of me. So we will, we will see how this goes. I will promise to try not to go over my time whatsoever. Matthew chapter 10. I needed to set that stage because listen to how this unfolds from here. And when he had called unto himself, or uh, called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebeus, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now pause. You see, if we read this chapter in a vacuum, if we ignore what came before it, and we read just this here, we may be tempted to think that this setup is only for the sole purpose of saying that Jesus came to bless the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And, and, and that's true. We can, we can go from the Old Testament and talk about how God gave the blessings and how the things unfolded. Those things are not true, untrue. But when we read chapter 9, we realize that what's happening here is actually a little more involved than just the idea of the, the word coming to the Jews first. Because you see, Jesus had just pointed out in all of chapter 9 about how that he came to his own city, his own people, to bring about the kingdom, and yet at every turn he was being rejected, being accused of being in allegiance with Satan. He was being denied in his own home. And so now he's identifying this great need for laborers in the harvest. And so now when we come into verse 10, or in chapter 10, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's giving them these instructions of don't go to the, Jew, the Gentiles yet. Don't go there. You're going to go to the Jews. You realize that there's something actually a lot, a lot more stern, if you will, than just blessing the Jews. Because Jesus realizes that before there can be this large harvest across the nation, that he's got to do some correction. There's some things that got to be fixed first in his own house, so to speak, his own people, if you will, before it can go forward, before Israel can be what it's supposed to be, which is a priesthood of God to the nations. There's got to be some house cleaning. And so now we see when Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's giving them all of this power and, and, and authority, listen now what he's saying, but go rather to the lost sheep. Of the house of Israel. And as you go preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember in the beginning I talked about how that 
oftentimes we as people, and even specifically that the Jews were often con so concerned about this time frame of the future, always looking to some future time that they would see things come to pass. So it's no mystery that Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, you tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop looking to the distant future for God to be in control. The kingdom of heaven is at hand now. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. It's interesting. I stood up here right after the song, and I said, we are often so concerned about the timing, and, and then, okay, God, I know we want to do this, but what about this time, and this time, and this time? And yet here, when God is sending out his workers, his laborers, right? That's, that's what's happening here. Matthew 9 told us in the end that, that there was a harvest and that Jesus was sending laborers. And now we see the laborers being sent. One of the things that he is specific to say is, listen, stop being so concerned with how you're going to provide that you're not able to go forth and do the harvest. Instead, don't worry about that stuff. That's not Jesus saying be foolish. That's not Jesus saying, hey, just throw your money away. Don't, don't be wise. That, that's not what's happening here. But he's saying stop being so concerned in the flesh that it stops you from doing that which is spiritual. He says in verse 12, And when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And I have to tell you, when I read these verses, I felt a little bit like, woof, woe is me. Because at least what God spoke to me, okay, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at anyone other than my own self. What this said to me immediately was this. We look at stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in perpetuity we will recall the story of their wickedness and how that God destroyed the city and made it uninhabitable for as long as he tarried prior to his return. We all, anyone who's spent any time in a church knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But do you know that Jesus said the city or the house that heard the word of God and yet willingly chose to reject it, it is worse for them than the city of Sodom and Gomorrah at his return. And I'm telling you, that I am not, I am not putting that out toward anyone else other than myself. 
I, I, I live for God. My family lives for God. But look, I am a human being, and I make mistakes. There are times that, that I have attitudes with people that I shouldn't. There are times that I should probably be a little bit more faithful to certain aspects of my Christian walk. Am I, am I speaking to humans? And I have to look at verses like this for myself and say, God, help me to never turn away conviction. I want to feel God's presence, that sword, if you will, piercing my heart to let me know, hey, Jeremy, you're messing it up. Because I would much rather feel broken here at the presence that I know I'm doing something wrong than to stand before God and him say, hey, it's worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. When I read these verses and I stand up here and I say words that maybe some will say, man, that's strong. I, I hope you can know that it is here first. Because what good would it be for me to stand up here and preach the most fiery message and yet not do it here? I don't need my name posted on some speaker's meeting. I, I don't need my name written anywhere in lights within the UPC or the United States or anywhere else. Because all of that will fade away. But will I hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, I, I recently told Pastor Powell... I can't even remember what we were, we were talking about originally. Not too long ago, I saw a, a Facebook memory come up. And in that, in that memory, it was some, something posted by the church. It was Easter, and it was something to the effect of, you know, um, we're grateful for our preaching pastor, Jeremy Cole, and his family, and that kind of thing. And it was just a short, very nice, you know, post with me and my family. And I was grateful, but you know... Something happened when I, when I saw that picture and I read that. You see, I remember I got in a church at, at the age of 14. And around the age of 17 or so, I, I started being involved to some level in ministry. And like everyone, I had my times of immaturity and growth throughout all of those years. And I remember for a long, long time thinking to myself, ooh, I wonder what it would be like to be a pastor. What would it be like to get that, that title, you know, when the way people, like, introduce the pastors when they go up and speak and how they, I mean, look, I'm just being honest. There was a long time of immaturity on my part, and, and I used to think a long time, like, man, what will it be like when I finally get there? And for those of you who have known me for any length of time, you know that several years ago, it's kind of hard to believe, really, ten years ago now, uh, there was a, a serious dark time in my life trying to deal with PTSD and the military and all the bad choices that surrounded all of that time frame. And, and though I never walked away from God and I still came to church, man, it was, it was dark. It was a time of great despair within my own life and my family. And, and I, I, I'm so glad that that is in my past. But you know, 
there is something, there's many things, but there is something from that time that I think I would probably maybe not have ever learned otherwise. When I came through that time frame, there was such a, a, a time of anger in my flesh because all I kept saying was, wait a minute, don't they know who I am? I am, I've been in church since I was 14. I've been, you know, doing some form of ministry since I was 17. I've never done drugs. I've never been in, you know, in, in trouble with the law. I've done all these fantastic things. And how dare, you know, they set me down from this or they look at me like this. It was my flesh. It was my, my spiritual immaturity saying that I was somebody because of my name. And, you know, I will never, ever forget the day going with my own little temper tantrum that plain as day, God spoke to me and said, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And the weight and despair in my own heart as I begin to reflect on that, how could I try to put myself in comparison with God of the universe, the only one who never sinned, the one who loved so much that despite our sin, he still loved us. How could I be that person? And I say all of this for a reason. I, I'm not just kind of going off on a tangent here because you see, in many ways, this is the heart of what I see here. A people who, for generation after generation, were known as God's people. For generation after generation, who were taught to keep customs and, and precepts uh, uh, of tradition. And who were told that they were God's chosen people. And, and many of them, maybe they believed it, but they didn't understand it. And so now what we see happening is, far, for the first time in many of their lives... They are having their moment of coming face to face with their own hypocrisy. They are having their revelation, if you will, of this separation that they've created of their own righteousness. And yet God is trying to explain to them, no, 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 you have it all twisted. You see, because when I, when I saw that picture, I realized I feel no different. And that's not a bad thing. I feel no different because I realize that I am no one in comparison to the goodness of God. I feel no different because I realize that like whether I have pastor on there or not, it doesn't change how God sees me or loves me. It doesn't make me more important and it doesn't make me less important. If it does anything, it reminds me that there is a people that needs saving. There is a harvest needs laborers I see those times and those titles so different now in my life but you know there was a time that I was the Jews in chapter 10 where where I thought that I was all that in a bag of chips and I was doing everything right and so when I saw that like I thought I was following God's will and yet people were were were, were not giving me what I thought I'd earned I became confused and maybe even at times despondent. But now listen. In verse 
15, we read that it said, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. But listen, because I hope every one of us, I pray every one of us wants to be laborers for the harvest. I pray that. But listen, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Man, that took a turn pretty quickly. All of a sudden, we went from talking about the kingdom and, and, and being like laborers and the harvest, and now all of a sudden, we're talking about suffering. It's almost as if there was an acceptable suffering. If you didn't know, listen to Sunday's message. Verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings... Keywords, for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak. Do they know who I am? For it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father and the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But here it is. Here is the point. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved but when they persecute you in this city flee ye into another for verily I say unto you you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the son of man become the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his lord it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his lord if they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub how much more shall they call them of his household let me pause here for just a quick moment and I'm going to start wrapping this up here real shortly. When I read these verses, this is not in any way meant to bring about a spirit of fear or, or depression or distress. Because I sat here and talked about how that there would be these times of, of, of people persecuting you and lying on you and, and, and all of this stuff happening to you. But really, it's not happening to you. It's happening because of him. Because we are laborers in his harvest. The reason why we can look at verses like this and maybe on the beginning, at the outset, become sad or depressed or discouraged is because we're looking at it from this perspective of time. You see, we look at this and we say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying that for me to be a part, to be a laborer, there, I have to like go through this time frame of like people lying on me, like 
bad stuff happening. Well, first I would tell you whether you're with God or against God, that's going to happen regardless. But here's the difference. Him that endureth to the end is saved. Now, first, for you and your household, when it says saved, I think we all know what it means. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like I'm bringing some big revelation to you, but, but let me maybe just remind you. Because Scripture teaches us that the present sufferings, the hardships that we go through now, are nothing in comparison to the eternity with God that awaits us. We're also reminded that there is nothing that this world can throw against us that can remove us from his love, right? Death, nor life, height, depth, power, principality, nothing that this world has to throw it against us can remove us from the love of God. What that reminds me is that though there will be times I feel sad or maybe there is struggle, I can also always remind myself that, hey, he still has me. Not only does he have me now, but he's going to have me to salvation. The reason this world has so much depression and despair and stress is because there is no hope beyond their present circumstances. The reason fear grips people now is because they don't see an out. You ask anyone who does anything in counseling of any kind, and they will tell you something to this extent. Anybody in crisis, if you can get them to just not do anything for a little bit of time, there is a chance things will change. Because what happens is people, when they get in crisis, they see no possible out, and that's when they make poor decisions in desperation. But when people in crisis can stop even for a moment and step back and look at the situation, their chances of recovering significantly increase. For us as children of God, for us as who want to be laborers in the harvest, there will be times when this world raises up against us and says things against us. But I am encouraging you to stop, step back, and remember that God has your back. That no matter what you feel in the moment, and I don't want to belittle your emotions. You see, I think sometimes we as Christians get it messed up because we think if we feel sad that we must not be saved. That's, that's not true. God gave us emotions. But God also gave us the Holy Ghost. That when we have those emotions, we can encourage ourselves in the Lord. That when we feel those moments of fear, that we can remember that His perfect love casteth out all fear. Stop being concerned that you're having emotions and start focusing on what you're going to do in your response to those emotions. You see, because the biggest thing that is going to affect, if you will, the laborers in the harvest is not the people, but it's going to be your response to the people. This world has no power over you. You will be tempted to believe that. You will be tempted to feel that, to have fear because of your circumstance. But I want to remind you 
that this world has no power over you. That's why Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey, don't worry. I have already overcome the world. And you know, one of the things I, I, I love, I love reminding people, and I love reminding myself even more, I suppose, is that when Jesus says that he is with you, he doesn't say that he is with you now, but says he is with you even unto the end of the world. And the word better is maybe translated as age, but the, the, the point of what he's saying is, listen, you feel sad or distressed or afraid now, take heart, I'm with you. But also remember going forward that when this happens again, I'm there too. And then two times later when it happens again, I'm there too. So when we labor for the harvest, when we have those reoccurring moments of sadness, fear, because the law of the laborer is that the world will hate them for what it is they're trying to bring about. But the other part of the law of the laborer is that God has already overcome. And we're not laboring to make, be victorious in ourselves. No, no, no. We're just trying to let the world know that God is already victorious. The rise and fall of the kingdom doesn't depend on your power to win. No, no, no. It's just your consistency to remember that he's already won. Let's all stand. We've got about 10 minutes. I want to take just a couple minutes. We'll pray a little bit together, but I think it may not be such a bad idea. If we could take just, just a couple minutes. I'm not asking for an hour. You could give God just five minutes. Time of reflection. Maybe a time of an encouragement for yourself. To first remember this, that God loves you and wants you as part of his harvest. But that God also wants your family as part of his harvest. God wants your neighbors, your co-workers, as part of the harvest. And we are positioned in such an awesome way to be laborers in God's harvest for this world. So I pray that we would remember first our mission. We would remember that when things happen, he's for us, but also that he is with you and he will be with you at all times. So be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you came to a people that had rejected you time after time. And yet your love still persisted and your grace persisted. And you call into this world like sheep who still need a shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to catch the vision, to understand the importance of the harvest, to recognize that this world is quickly moving to an end. That we would remember the importance of what we labor for and who we labor with. I pray that we would be encouraged. We would encourage ourselves for we would know that you have already won the victory. That you've already defeated the enemy. That you've already overcome death, hell, and the grave. That you are already the king eternal. King undefeated. The king in victory, that we do not fear man, for he is but temporary, but we love and serve you who is eternal. We pray, O oh God, let us not only encourage ourselves, let us look to our brothers and our sisters to our left and our right. Let us encourage one another. 
Let us be in unity within our brothers and our sisters in the kingdom. Let us uplift one another and be united in one vision behind one word and one vision and purpose. Lord, we give you all glory and honor and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.